All right, please be seated, and we will um, <clears throat> go to our Westminster Shorter Catechism, the sermon series on that. We are in a new section now. We came to question number 85, and it's a new, really, a subsection of the catechism that is itself divided into several subsections. So it's a larger subsection than uh, the, some of the other subsections that we have. If you remember, the catechism itself is divided into two main subsections. You have the first three questions that talk about our chief end, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And then how do we know how to do that? We have the Word of God that is given to us. Remember the third question, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. There's two parts that outline the whole catechism. So from question 4 to question 38, you have what man is to believe concerning God. He's given us the, the doctrine that we are to believe, the things we are to believe. And then you have from question 39 to the end of the catechism, question 107, you have the duty that God requires of man. How are we to live is how, what you would uh, have there. Now, this second section then is itself divided into subsections. So questions 40 through 84, which is where we completed last week, that subsection Question 40 to 84 was about the moral law. So the Ten Commandments and a few other questions like the three that we saw that are related to the Ten Commandments showing that we we break the commandments all the time, that not not all uh, the commandments or not all of our sins are are equal, that some are worse than others, and uh, also that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, not only in this life, but also in that which is to come. So we finished that last week about the moral law, and then questions 85 that were picked where we're beginning today, this new section, to 107 is about how we receive the salvation of God. So question 85 introduces us to this section about how a person is saved. It really does answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Having seen that we fail to keep the moral law, and that consequently we are deserving of God's wrath and curse, not only in this life, but also in that which is to come, it is only natural for us to ask the question, how can we escape the wrath and curse of God? Anyone who believes that we deserve God's wrath and curse forever will want to know how they can escape. How can I be delivered from God's wrath and curse? So let's confess this question together, question 85. I'll do the question and then we'll confess the answer together. Question 85, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. Now, this is what we will be talking about for the remainder of this sermon series in the Shorter Catechism. 
We will consider it in a summary way today. This is a summary of the whole outlay. And then we will look at the details in, the, in future sermons for quite a while. For our scripture reading related to today's question, I've selected Acts 2, 36 through 47. And here in Acts 2, we're told how the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus' disciples with signs and wonders that no one could deny. It was very evident that there was something miraculous that was going on here. We're told how some of the Jews who had supported the crucifixion of Christ and had a part in delivering him over to be crucified were brought face to face with the disciples of Jesus doing these signs and wonders. And Peter told them that though they had crucified Christ, God had exalted him to be Lord and Savior, and that it was he who had poured out his Holy Spirit. And that's what they were witnessing here. It was the testimony of the risen Jesus Christ. Needless to say, those who accepted the obvious were immediately cut to their heart. Probably in a certain way, everyone was cut to their heart. The ones that were trying to resist it were still greatly affected by what had happened here. They had crucified their own Messiah. That was the charge that was being brought. They, they know then, these ones that had been truly cut to the heart by the Spirit, they know that they were sinners who had offended the Most High God. And they were desperate. They, they wanted to know what they could do. They wanted to escape the wrath and curse of God. So they cried out saying, what must we do? Right? Just what our catechism, what, what do we do to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin? Listen now as I read this account to you, beginning with Acts 2.36. This is God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved." And there we shall end a reading of God's holy word. You can see their question in verse 37. They say to Peter and the other disciples, Men and brethren, what 
shall we do? They were in a place of great distress and anguish. They knew that they were guilty before a holy God. It was actually a very good place for them to be. They needed to see that they were indeed guilty. Even if they hadn't crucified the Lord Jesus, they were still guilty of sin before God, as we all are. And this helped them to see clearly that they were sinners and that their sin demanded eternal punishment and just for justice to be satisfied. Yet by asking Peter what to do in this desperate condition, then P- Peter tells them, he, sa- he tells them how to escape the wrath and curse of God. I very much hope that all of you can see that you need to have escaped from the wrath and curse of God because of your sin. And as we saw when we studied about God's law, the very fact that we sin against the most high God at all, even that we come short of what we ought to be in praising and worshiping him is enough to show that we are sinners who need a way to escape the wrath and curse of God. And that's what our question for today is all about. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? I'll follow the outline of the catechism. So we'll look first at faith in Jesus Christ, then at repentance unto life, then at the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So I'll show you how each of these is supported in Scripture and by what Peter says in our text. So first of all, God requires faith in Jesus Christ that we may escape his curse. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to depend on him to deliver you from God's wrath and curse. It's to look to him to do that. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of Jesus Christ as his forerunner. John's message was that the kingdom had come because the Messiah had come. When Jesus appeared, John declared that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. It was something that people needed to believe by believing that they might be saved. Soon after John presented Jesus that way, Jesus himself appeared and began to preach the good news that with his coming, the kingdom of God had come because he was the king. He was the Lord and Savior. Even before he went to the cross, Jesus declared that salvation came through believing in him. Jesus' disciples did not understand that the Messiah was supposed to go to the cross to bear the curse of the sins of his people. Even though the prophets had foretold it and Jesus had told them plainly that he would give his life a ransom for many, you can't be much more plain than that, they could not fathom that the Messiah would do such a thing. It didn't fit into their theology about the Messiah. They could not fathom it, that is, until he actually did it. And then when he actually died on the cross, they had to deal with it And then they accepted the explanation that he did it in order to atone for our sins. They could no longer deny it. And once they understood it, 
They didn't want to deny it. <laughs> they were very glad for the cross that had been something that was just bewildered them before Jesus actually suffered. And even while he was suffering, became to them the thing that they gloried in and wanted to preach everywhere. Everything came together for them when they realized that Jesus had come to be all that the sacrifices of the temple foreshadowed. What John meant when he said the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, an offering for that purpose. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice is shown by raising him from the dead and then exalting him to reign at his right hand until all of his enemies are made his footstool. The declaration concerning Jesus was that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Faith or believing in Christ establishes union with him so that we receive all the benefits of his saving work. You remember the benefits? We looked at that in that first section of the catechism, those first uh, 38 um, questions there. We, We don't have time to review these, but in the briefest way, But first, you remember the first benefit that it emphasizes is justification by which we are declared to be righteous in God's sight, not because we are, because we have all sinned, but because Jesus, our Redeemer, and the head of the church is righteous and because he has paid for our sins by becoming a curse for us on the cross, what we saw in Galatians 3 recently. We rely on that, and we are justified. Justified how? By faith. That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? How do we escape the wrath of the curse of God? By faith, by believing, trusting in Jesus, receiving and resting upon Christ and all that he has done. And then by believing in him in this way, justification, then we are adopted. Adoption is the second benefit by which we are brought into Christ's family. To be his, we become his own sons forever with Jesus, his natural son. We are now his brothers. And we have all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. And then believing in him, we also receive by faith the benefit of sanctification. That is the benefit of being changed into his likeness by the power and gracious working of the Holy Spirit. So that we more and more, we're initially changed by the new birth, that's initial sanctification, and then we are, um, or definitive sanctification, and then we are transformed over life progressively so that we, we die to sin and we live to righteousness. We're changed. We put off the old man and put on the new man by faith. You see, trusting in Jesus for that benefit. And besides all that, we're given those other additional benefits. We had separate sermons on each one of these. It was one question, but we did multiple sermons on that question. Assurance of God's love peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance thereon unto the end. Those are all things that we have from Jesus Christ by faith. And then at the end, we're promised that we will be made perfect in holiness, that our bodies will be raised 
and that we will be brought into the immediate presence of God and Jesus Christ forever, and that we will share an inheritance in a new heaven and new earth where the earth will be restored and redeemed along with us so that it is no longer under the curse of God. There will be no more sorrow and no more tears. All of this comes by faith in Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus to save us by his work on the cross, and all these benefits become ours. We do not have to pay for them. All we have to do is believe, trust in Jesus for these blessings. In our text, Peter, interestingly, does not actually use the word believe, trust, faith, when he is telling the guilty Jews what they must do to be saved. How could you tell someone how to be saved when you don't even mention believing or faith or trusting? And why do we say that this is one of the things that is talked about here? Well, when they obey what Peter tells them, they're afterwards said to have received the word and to have believed, to have believed and to received his word. 241, which of course means that they believed what Peter said about Jesus being Lord in Christ. If they had not believed it, they would not be saved. They had to have a faith, a dependence upon him as Savior is presented. And in Acts 2.44, it refers to the saved ones as all those who believed. So even though Peter does not use the words, it's clear that he is instructing them to have faith in Christ or to believe in him. What he says instead of believe on the Lord Jesus in this case we look at verse 38, he says, Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your children, and so on. The Jews knew that baptism was a symbol of washing and cleansing, washing away of sin and defilement, of guilt and pollution. So baptism into the name of Jesus Christ was a symbol of washing by him, of looking to him to wash us, to cleanse us. These Jews were not asking Peter how to have their bodies washed when they said, what must we do? Oh, we got dirty today, you know, out walking around or whatever. No, they wanted to be cleansed from their sin. And that was their problem. So they knew that they were guilty. And so they understood when Peter said this, that he was telling them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, looking to Jesus to wash away their sins, to cleanse them from their sin and guilt. They were indeed baptized with water. They were given the sign. But what they were doing by receiving the sign was looking to Jesus who was promised in the sign. Okay, looking to him to wash away their sins as their redeemer. They were believing the promise that Peter said, the promise is to you and your children. A promise is to be believed. And the way they showed they were believing it was by being baptized. Many times people will have people to pray a prayer to receive Christ. Interestingly, Peter does not do that here, but he says to, to be baptized 
in the name of Christ. Peter also speaks of the promise of the Holy Spirit. They had just seen signs of the Holy Spirit being poured out, so they were very much uh, attuned to this whole thing. And they had heard the disciples of Jesus miraculously speak God's praises in their own languages, languages that the disciples had never learned. And they had heard the familiar promises of the Old Testament that God would pour out his spirit in the last days. And uh, they, they knew from Ezekiel that the spirit was promised with baptism. I'll sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. That along with that was promised the giving of a new heart, taking away the stony heart and giving them a heart of flesh. So they were added, according to verse 41, when they gladly received the word. That's to believe the word, isn't it? That Peter preached. And they are described, as I mentioned before, as those who had believed in verse 44. It was not just a faith in the facts, but a faith that trusted in Jesus to save them from God's wrath and curse. They relied on Jesus. Now, we'll be looking more detail at faith later on. But you can see here that this is presented as the first thing. So faith in Jesus Christ is the principal thing you must do to escape the wrath and curse of God. If you have not trusted in Christ, then you have nothing by which to be saved. You have no way to remove your sin and your guilt within yourself. You have no way to escape God's wrath and curse. You can't get away from his judgment you will be condemned along with the devil. The good news of the gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust him, receive him for salvation, rest upon him as he is offered in the gospel. Come to him, come and be saved. Look to him and be saved. All of these are essentially the same thing said in different ways. Now let's look at the second thing the catechism mentions. Repentance unto life is a thing you must do to be saved from God's wrath and curse. What is repentance? Well, it involves, first of all, coming to see your sin as sin. Coming to see that your relationship with God is not right, that it is broken because you do not conform to his ways. As I said in the earlier service, you're not in harmony with God. You realize then that you are unrighteous, that things are not right between you and your maker. And then seeing that, you turn away from your sin to follow the Lord. You turn from your known sins and you also realize that you have a lot more to learn about and to know what is pleasing to him. And so you look to him to lead you, to direct you. That's part of repentance too. You ask him to teach you and show you the way that you should go. You become meek toward him, wanting to be led by him, led in his ways. You leave your old way of living and you start following Jesus. That's what Jesus said many times. Repent and follow me, didn't he? Come follow me. And not only that, but when you repent, you also realize that you are weak. There is stubbornness in you. And even though you don't want that to be the case, you find that it's there. You find that you're still attracted to sin, even though you know it is repulsive. There is pride and selfishness and a lack of zeal for God and a lack of love for him 
And for your neighbor, there are sins of the flesh and there are sins of the spirit. There's all, all sorts of problems. So repentance also involves looking to the Lord to help you in your weakness, turning away to give you the grace to serve him and to learn what pleases him. You can see how that ties in with faith. The truth is there are actually two ways that repentance is inseparable from faith. There's the way that I just mentioned, okay? That you look to the Lord to help you change. You know that you cannot obey Him or even know His will without His grace or help. So you look to Him for help. See, that's faith. The looking to Him for help in order to put off the old way and put on the new way. So you're repenting, but it's tied up with faith, looking to Him to bring the change. A person can't really turn from sin without turning to the Lord in faith for help. You don't really repent unless you look to him for help. I suppose a person might try to do that to turn over a new leaf, but it's not real repentance. If they think that they can do that in their own strength, they don't really realize their their need and their condition. Real repentance only occurs when you see that, that you must trust in the Lord with your repentance. A second way that repentance is inseparable from faith is that when you turn to him to follow him, you also look to him for pardon, okay? Not only to change you, to live for him, but also for pardon. Your goal in turning from your sin is not just to start walking in obedience, just to be a obedience robot or something, but you want to restore the broken relationship with God that you have because of your sin. So you turn to him for pardon, the pardon that comes through Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sin. If there was no promise of pardon, then you wouldn't repent. There would be, I guess, in a sense, no reason to repent. Like Psalm 130 says that there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. You can see how in Acts 2, repentance is the first thing that Peter mentions. These people knew that they had done wrong. They had crucified the one that God had sent to be their Messiah and God had raised that one from the dead, they, showing that they really did something horrendous here. They were cut to the heart, and the first thing Peter tells them to do is repent. Turn from what you are. Turn from your wrong to God and to what is right. It was not the time to try to make excuses or to defend themselves. When you repent, you don't make excuses. You turn a, away from your sin. There were some that did that, no doubt, but those who did that were the ones who were not cut to the heart as they should have been and who did not ever repent. Repentance always involves a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Of course, there are times when we find it hard to give up the old ways. Patterns, old patterns are very hard to break. They're deeply ingrained. A man may come to see that his anger is wrong and still flare up. But whenever it does, he, if he is a believer, he renews his repentance again. He doesn't just go on and tolerate it as if it's not something that is concerning. He may come to see also his lust is wrong. Well, he will come to see that, but still be drawn away at times. But the difference is that he is now against doing this. He is not looking to do these things anymore. He is at war with his flesh 
and with his deceitful lusts that lie to him and promise him things. For this reason, we cannot regard as sincere the person who continues in sin. For example, if you have stolen something, then if you're sincere when you repent, you won't hang on to what you've stolen. You will go and restore it. You won't be able to live with hanging on to it because that's not repentance. Saying, oh, well, I'm sorry I did that, but I'm going to keep it anyway. No, that's not repentance. You have to restore it. You have to deal with it. If you told a lie, you won't be able to keep that lie going. You can't live in a lie. You have to come and say, I lied to you. Like, I can't sleep at night, right? Because I, I, I I'm a person who repents. I, I can't live with that. I have to come and speak the truth. If you're living in sexual immorality, you get out of the immorality. If you keep living in it, it betrays you as insincere. One way to say it is that you will not make provision for the flesh. You know, if a man was uh, involved in an adulterous affair and he's still got the keys to the woman's apartment that he was having an affair with, he has not repented. Like, what is he, why does he have the keys? Like, he needs to deal with this. He may be overcome. A person may be overcome by their temptation and, and fall into sin. But he won't have provision laid up to sin again. So you, you don't make provision for your sin in that way, claim, claiming that you have repented. It's one thing to fall into sin, but it's quite another to be living in sin. Do you, do you see the difference? A person who truly repents stops living in rebellion. He follows the Lord. So what about you? Question would be, have you actually repented of your sin or are you just playing games with an outward form of repentance? Are you still dead in your sins? Or are you a new creation in Jesus Christ, made alive to serve God, raised to walk in newness of life? Another way to ask it is this, are you living for God? Do you turn from your sin so that you can walk with God the Father and with God the Son? Are you content to just go on in your sin? That's not new life. So now we have seen the two principal things that we must do to escape the wrath and curse of God. We must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we must have repentance unto life. But there is also a third thing that our catechism mentions, and it is something that is also inseparable from true life in Christ. Now, at first, a lot of people might think, oh, no, I think that one can be separated. It can't. I'm going to all show you that. To escape God's wrath and curse, you must also continue diligently in the means of grace. Do you know what the means of grace are? Sometimes I'll ask um, children that I'm interviewing for communicant membership about that. Sometimes I'll say, no, I don't know what the means of grace are. You need to know what the means of grace are. This is, this is an important thing. The means of grace are the ways that God has appointed for us to receive his grace and saving help. They're called means of grace because they're means by which we receive grace. The means that God uses to nurture our faith and our new life of repentance or, rep- or, or um, obedience. They are the instruments or the means that God has appointed for us to grow in our relationship with him. 
It's like going to school and reading and doing your assignments is a means for learning. If you go to school, you're not going to learn anything if you don't read and don't do your assignments and don't go to class. You, you can say, oh, well, I'm enrolled in the school. Well, yeah, but you're not learning. You're not living in that. You're, you're not really a student unless you're doing the things that students do. Or take even maybe more pointedly, eating and breathing. What are they means of? Eating and breathing are means of sustaining your physical life. So a person who does not eat and breathe is a person who is not alive, right? The, the means are essential. You, you don't have life if you're not eating and breathing. The catechism tells us what the principal means of grace are in question 88. The things that, that nurture, that feed our salvation and our communion with God. They are the ordinances of God, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. Each of these are tools or means that God uses to communicate or convey to us the benefits of Christ's redemption. Now just think about how Christ uses each one of these means. First of all, the word. In his wisdom, God created us with the ability to speak, and he has used words as the primary means by which he reveals himself. We don't know God without the word. As human beings, we hardly even know what it is to think without words. God gave us this ability so that we could learn about him, so that we could describe him, so that he could describe himself to us, and so that we could talk about him to each other and think about him in meaningful ways. One of the rebellions of postmodernism is to say that words are meaningless constructs. That's nonsense. The truth is we can talk about things with understanding. We can talk about concrete things, like telling someone that we saw a house with a tree in a front yard. That has meaning. You know what that means. And it means the same thing to you that it means to me. And we can talk about things like love or mercy or forgiveness or eternity. It all has meaning. Those are abstract things that you can't, they're not things that we can touch. But we have, we have the ability as human beings to communicate such things with meaning because God gave us that ability as human beings. When we speak of the word as a means of grace, we're talking about God's ordinances of reading the word, preaching the word, and singing the word, which he has given to us in Holy Scripture. All along, God has been pleased to send prophets to speak his word to us. And they tell us about God and about his ways, and they have, he has had their words put into Scripture for us. They tell us his promises, and they tell us how God wants us to live what we're to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. God sent them and God gave them signs and wonders to confirm that they were speaking for him, like we saw with the miracles that were done at Pentecost. He had them write their prophecies in the Holy Scriptures, which are able to show us the way of salvation and make us wise unto salvation. 
Understand that when the word is a means of grace, God's spirit actually brings the word to us in ways that transform us and make us live. How, you say? Well, tell me how food makes us live. Tell me how air makes us live. I mean, we might be able to talk to a doctor and get some insights about this, but it's a pretty marvelous thing. The scriptures come to us by the Spirit in a way that feeds us spiritually, feeds our faith so that we believe and brings us to repentance and conviction of sin by the working of the Spirit. It is through the word preached then that the people in Acts 2 learned that they had crucified Jesus and that God had raised him from the dead. They understood what that meant when Peter said it and that he had sent forth his Holy Spirit, which they saw. And it was the signs of the Spirit. And it was through the preaching of the word that they learned that God had promised forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. Couldn't have known that without the word. And that he had promised to give those who believe the Holy Spirit. Without the word, we would not know how to be saved. We would have no idea. We would, we would not know why Jesus died and rose again. Even if you were there standing by the cross and you saw Jesus die on the cross. And if you came to the tomb and you saw him put in the tomb and you watched and you saw him come out of the tomb, raised from the dead, it, would not, it wouldn't have a saving effect on you. You would have no idea why he did that. What does it mean for you? You have to have the word. Uh, and after we believe... We would not know how he wants us to live. We would not see the sin that we need to turn from, nor the new life that we need to walk in. And we would not know what God is like, how he is to be praised and worshipped. But you see, God has given us the promises to believe, the commandments to obey, and the psalms to sing. We are to continue diligently in these ordinances of the word. It is through believing the word that we were initially saved, just as it was for those who received Peter's preached word in Acts 2.41, where it shows that those who gladly received his words were added to the church. They became part of the believing body of Christ. And it is through continuing steadfastly in the apostles' teaching that we grow in the Lord and that we're kept in the faith. You see, we are made alive, and just as we have to breathe and eat in order to stay physically alive, we have to read the Word and engage in the Word in order to stay spiritually alive, to live in communion with our God. We're told in Acts 2.42 that those who believe continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching or doctrine. If we don't continue diligently in the Word, it may indicate that we have never truly believed. In John 8, Jesus said who were his disciples in just an outward way, and he distinguished them from those who are his disciples indeed as those who continue in my word, he says. So they're not people that just come along in a flash and say, oh, let's go follow Jesus, and then they don't continue in the word. No, you continue diligently in the means of grace. If you're really saved, you can't stay away from because God is your God, and you, you, you live now. In, in the word, so to speak. So um, in John 10, Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. And besides the word, the sacraments are mentioned. These are special signs that God has given to his people, not only to mark them out from those that are not his people, 
but also to be signs to them of the saving grace that he promises in Jesus Christ and the means by which the sacraments are a means by which he actually applies the saving benefits of Christ to us. When we receive these signs and seals with faith, the Lord actually gives what is represented in the sign. There are two sacraments of the New Testament, and both of them are mentioned in Acts 2. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to say that a person who is unable to have baptism in the Lord's Supper, they can be saved through the, the hearing of the word um, without the sacraments, but ordinarily the sacraments are a part of our communion with him. We, are, we already saw baptism in connection with faith when Peter told those who saw that they were guilty sinners before God to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. They were to be baptized in the name of Christ because he was the one through whom we have forgiveness of sins. And he is the one who gives the Holy Spirit according to God's promise. Both of these are represented in baptism. Baptism is a symbol or sign of cleansing. When it is applied to us, it is also a seal that God has cleansed us, that we look back on our baptism. And as the larger catechism says, we improve our baptism. Once the sign has been applied to us, it is our duty to rest in the seal of that baptism for the rest of our life. And to rest, I should say, in the one in whose name we were baptized. We were sealed unto him to look to him in faith, to wash away our guilt and our sins. We repent and we look to the Savior to wash us. We are told that those who received the word that Peter preached were baptized. That's what Peter told them to do along with their children, and that's what they did. In verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That was how they were identified and distinguished as Christians, as believers, as disciples of Christ. And then in verse 42, we saw that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in that verse. But that verse also says that they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. It's a reference here to the Lord's Supper. There is the breaking of bread which is sharing meals together in a general way. Breaking of bread can refer to just having supper together. But in Acts 2.42, it's clearly spoken of as an ordinance of the Lord because it is put side by side with the word and with prayer and uh, fellowship. So in the original, it has the definite article so that it is literally translated the breaking Yeah, the article is there in the translation, but it's also before bread. The breaking of the bread. So it's talking about the bread of the sacrament. And besides, it would be silly to say that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of the bread, like if it was just talking about ordinary meals. No, it's talking about ordinance of God, the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's a reference to the Supper. This is the ceremony that Jesus appointed on the night he was betrayed in which he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at which time he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
shed for the remission of the sins of many. By this means, Jesus shows those who believe that they have a share in his sacrifice and in all of its benefits. It is God's reassurance to us that we're constantly given life and forgiveness by Jesus Christ after we have believed, that it's an ongoing thing. Okay, life is given to us, forgiveness is given to us. And when we come believing, he actually meets us at the table to convey his saving benefits to us. We're to go through life trusting in him who was crucified for us for our salvation. And the Lord's Supper is a means that is given to us by which he conveys his grace and keeps us going on to the end. It's a means of preserving us in our walk with God, of sustaining, maybe is a better word to say, of sustaining our communion and fellowship with all of the benefits of Christ. It's communion in his body and blood, you see. So we're to continue in the word and in the sacraments. And then there is the third primary means of grace, prayer. Prayer is a very natural expression of true faith and repentance. When you see, as the Jews who had crucified Christ saw, that you're a sinner before God, you can't keep but from crying out to God for mercy. I mean, you ask God to forgive you. You ask him when you see that you're a helpless sinner under his wrath and curse, what you have done. You, you, you ask him to give you new life. You ask him to show you his way, the way to live. You ask him to help you live. You ask him to save others. And you see, this is a component of faith. Where there is faith, there's going to be a looking to him and asking of him for these things. You ask him to show you his glory because you want to know him. You trust him to show you, when you ask him to do it, you trust him to show you his glory. You can see in Acts 2.42 that, that prayer is another one of the ordinances that the believers are said to have continued steadfastly in. It is a means of grace because God answers it. Okay? When, you, when you cry out to him, he responds. He gives us mercy when we ask for it through faith in Jesus Christ. He gives us forgiveness of sins. That's grace given to us. He pours out his Holy Spirit on us and enables us to know his will. That's his grace. When we ask him, he even hears us to give grace to others. When we ask him for the salvation of our loved ones or to work in our children or to work in our spouse or the people around us. These means are not to be neglected. If they are, it may be a sign that you do not even know the Lord in a saving way. Those who believe continue steadfastly in the word, sacraments, and prayer. Without them, how can you expect to endure to the end? Just like you can't expect to live very long if you stop breathing and eating. You're not going to live very long. Yes, repentance and faith connect you to Christ and all the benefits of salvation. But faith and repentance are not possible without the means of grace. Without the word, there is nothing to believe. And we grow comfortable in our sins because we're not hearing what God requires of us. We lose sight of that fact and of even our need to repent that we, or that we need Christ. If we don't ask for his help by prayer and rest upon him in the sacraments, 
How do we expect to receive his saving help? How is it going to come to us if we're not asking? Those who escape God's wrath and curse are those and only those who repent and believe and who continue steadfastly in the means of grace. If you're not doing that, then you need to come to Christ. Perhaps you're a believer who has fallen into a slump, but you have no way of knowing that unless you repent and, 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 and return to the Lord and to, um, to the means that he has appointed for you. Okay, please stand and let's ask for God to, to help us with these things. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much for the blessings that you have given to us in providing a way of escape for us. We were ruined and undone by our sin. But Lord, you came to us with promises of salvation. We thank you, O Lord, that you have given us a saving promise to believe. You have shown us our sin that we may repent of it and that we may turn to Christ and that we may have hope that as we turn, that you will help us to come and, and live for him, to put off the old man and put on the new man and to, to walk in, in obedience to him, to, to serve him. We thank you that you've given us the sacraments too that encourage us and help us as we look back at our baptism and we improve our baptism as we continually remember that we have been cleansed by Christ and that he is the one who gives us the spirit to cleanse us that he is the one who has died on the cross to wash away our sins, that we are washed because he washes us. And we thank you for the Lord's Supper that sustains us, that shows us that we are continually nourished in this life, that uh, you do not stop nourishing us and feeding us when we are once converted, but that you continue to do so, that you're very active in us, and that we can look to you, Lord, for ongoing blessing. We pray, Lord, that we would know these things in all of their fullness and richness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.